The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Acts, and today the next passage we come to is Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Linda. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time that we have to gather together around your word. We pray that the same Spirit, just as we just saw, that the same Spirit who inspired your word to be written originally would now come and make it clear to us, Lord. Help us to see everything here in this text that we need to see, to be changed and shaped in every way in which we need to be changed and shaped, Lord. That we would be encouraged convicted, raised up, and brought low, (laughs) all according to our needs, Lord. Minister this word to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Over a hundred years ago, a man named C.T. Studd wrote a poem in which the following two lines were repeated at the end of each stanza. And I believe these two lines are just as relevant for us today as they were the day he wrote them. They read, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, if you do a little reading on C.T. Studd, you'll discover that he didn't just say those words. He lived them. Studd was a missionary in the 1800s, first to China, and then to India, then finally to Africa. But before he was a missionary, he was actually a very famous cricket player in England. Uh, Cricket was a very popular sport in England, and C.T. Studd was very good at it. And his talent actually won him international fame, even beyond England. But he became convinced that God was calling him to do something other than play cricket, that God wanted him instead to become a cross-cultural missionary. To put it in some of Studd's own words, I knew that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last. But it was worthwhile living for the world So Stud packed up his bags and left for China. 
And then, like I said, later go to India and Africa as well, where he ended up dying on the mission field, just like so many other missionaries in the 1800s. So Studd took his own words quite seriously. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And uh, I don't know about you, but those words really speak to me. Because the reality is that life is indeed so short. I mean, we are here one moment and gone the next. All the seasons of life pass by so quickly. And whenever I think about that, it makes me want to make sure that I live my life and use my life and invest my life in the greatest possible way, the wisest way. One pastor named Tim Kiziar said it well when he stated that our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. See, it doesn't matter how successful you are if you're successful at the wrong things. So for me personally, I want to be successful at the right things as I hope you do as well. And that means living in such a way that our lives make the greatest possible impact on the people around us. Because let me remind you that for those of us who are Christians, we have treasures in Christ that are the greatest of all treasures. We've been forgiven of our sins clothed with Christ's righteousness, redeemed from our bondage to sin, indwelt with the very Spirit of God, adopted into God's family, and made heirs of an inheritance that is infinitely greater than we can even comprehend. And of course, the greatest treasure of all is Jesus himself, the treasure of Of all treasures. And we should want to share this treasure with others and make the greatest spiritual impact on them that we can possibly make. Yet that raises a very legitimate question How exactly can we make that kind of an impact? What specific approach should we take if we want our lives to have the greatest possible effect on others and? lead them to a full enjoyment of the treasure that is Christ. Like, where do we even begin as we seek to do that? Well, that's where this passage in Acts 16 comes in. Now, perhaps you think I'm about to talk about Paul's missionary travels, right? How he crisscrossed the Roman world as he proclaimed the gospel everywhere and planted churches. And that certainly is a key way in which Paul made an impact. However, it's actually not what we're going to be focusing on. Instead, our focus will be on what I believe is the most notable feature of this particular passage, which is the fact that Paul recruits a young man named Timothy to join him. Look again at verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, But his father was a Greek. So here we see Paul embarking on what's often known as his second 
missionary journey, which you can see on the map here. And uh, traveling back through two cities he had already been to on his first missionary journey, cities of Derby and Lystra, outlined there in red. Those of you who have been attending here regularly may recall that Lystra was the city where Paul had been stoned by the Jews and left for dead. And so now in Lystra here on his latest visit, Paul encounters a young man named Timothy who apparently shows a lot of potential. It also helps, as is mentioned here in the verse, that Timothy had a mother who was Jewish and a father who was Greek so that he's able to relate to both cultures. That would undoubtedly be quite helpful for the kind of missionary endeavors Paul was planning. Uh, Today, it might look like maybe going to southern Texas as a missionary and having a mother who's from Mexico and a father who's from the United States. Undoubtedly a very helpful thing. The text then says in verse 2 that Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So even though Timothy was rather young, scholars estimate he was only in his late teens or early 20s, he had still uh, uh, even already gained a reputation for himself, not only in Lystra, but even in the neighboring town of Iconium. It says he was well spoken of in both cities. Therefore, verse 3 tells us that Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So uh, Paul circumcises him so that they're not giving needless offense to the Jewish people that they're trying to reach out to, and then takes Timothy with him as he goes from city to city engaging in ministry, as we see in verses 4 and 5. And so from this point on, Timothy's going to be one of Paul's main traveling companions. And at first glance, that might seem like an incidental detail, like just one more fact in a narrative that records many facts. However, I believe it illustrates a foundational principle of how Paul approached ministry and sought to make the greatest possible impact with his life. He didn't just engage in the activities that he's best known for, like proclaiming the gospel in new areas where it had never been proclaimed before and and planting a bunch of churches. Now, he was also very deliberate about investing in key individuals in the context of what we might call discipling relationships. And Paul's determination to do that with Timothy is what I believe is the main idea of this passage. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him so he could make a significant spiritual investment in Timothy's life through a discipling relationship. Again, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him so he could make a significant spiritual investment in Timothy's life through a discipling relationship. And by the way, a discipling relationship is simply a relationship in which one Christian actively and intentionally helps another Christian grow towards spiritual maturity. So if you're taking notes, feel free to write that down in addition to the main idea. A discipling relationship is one in which one Christian actively and intentionally helps another Christian grow towards spiritual maturity. 
Just think about all the things that Paul and Timothy would do together. Like they would travel together, eat together, swap stories together, and have countless other conversations together. Acts also records how the two of them engaged in ministry together from one city to another. And Paul even lists Timothy as a co-author, along with himself, of the New Testament letters of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Pretty heavy degree of involvement there. So Paul and Timothy basically became like a father and son, spiritually speaking. In fact, Paul even refers to Timothy as, quote, my true child in the faith in 1 Timothy 1-2, and as his beloved child in 2 Timothy 1-2, and as his beloved and faithful child in the Lord in 1 Corinthians 4-17. Not only that, but it's also in the context of this discipling relationship that Timothy had the opportunity to observe Paul's life and ultimately to imitate the things he saw. Paul says to him in 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. And that's the way real discipleship happens, guys. It doesn't happen from a distance or in some sort of a classroom setting, but rather in the context of a meaningful relationship with someone who's more mature in the faith. And that's because there are so many things in the Christian life that are caught rather than taught. Things that people often need to see in someone else's life before they can live out to any significant degree in their own life. In the case of Paul and Timothy... Timothy had personally observed Paul on countless occasions and had countless opportunities to see how a mature Christian approaches different situations. Not only that, but we can only imagine the kinds of conversations they had, the topics they discussed, the questions that Paul answered, and the insights he provided for Timothy. So you could probably boil it all down to two basic elements of a discipling relationship. Observation and conversation. It's through observation and conversation that people learn the most and grow the most towards spiritual maturity. Consider also the fact that this is the way Jesus approached ministry as well. Yes, the Bible does record Jesus at times preaching to crowds of thousands. But it also describes how he chose 12 men and made those 12 his priority. Just like Paul and Timothy, Jesus and his 12 disciples traveled together and spent time together day in and day out. As a result, those 12 men had the opportunity to observed Jesus doing all kinds of different things and were able to have formative conversations with him on a regular basis. And by the way, how cool would that be? And again, that's what 
disciple making looks like. Like it, it's about a more mature Christian spending intentional time with a less mature Christian so they can model biblical virtues and have conversations about meaningful things. So that means, and hear me when I say this, that programs don't disciple people. Rather, people disciple people. Again, programs don't disciple people. People disciple people. Now, don't get me wrong uh, here. Programs have their place. There's a lot you can learn through programs, especially when it comes to knowledge and information, which are essential for spiritual growth. You can't grow spiritually apart from an ever-deepening knowledge of the Bible. However, Bible knowledge by itself is terribly incomplete. And is certainly no guarantee at all of spiritual maturity. Like if you could install a, uh, a USB drive in someone's head, right? And stick in th- this USB stick and, and uh, download volumes upon volumes of Bible knowledge and information and theology. That's not going to make them a more mature Christian automatically. It, it actually might cause them spiritual harm by making them proud. Because anytime your Bible knowledge significantly outpaces the other aspects of godliness in your life and of spiritual maturity, there's a big risk. It'll actually end up not increasing your godliness, but simply increasing your pride. So that you become, as the Bible says, puffed up with knowledge. So that's why discipling relationships are so critical. Because they promote balance. They facilitate not just the transfer of Bible knowledge, but the transfer also of an entire way of life, complete with all the habits, interests, perspectives, attitudes, practices, and passions that mark a godly person. No other channel or mechanism is able to impart all of these various aspects of godliness in the proper balance the way discipling relationships are able to do. It's similar in many ways to training for a new job. I remember back when I was in college, I worked at Sears selling appliances. And I remember when I was first hired, they wouldn't let me go out to the sales floor immediately. Before they let me go out to the sales floor, I first had to spend hours and hours in a back room in front of a computer. I think it was probably about 30 hours of training. And uh, for a portion of the training, they had these these fictitious scenarios where you would have to interact with customers and try to sell stuff and deal with angry customers and just different situations that you were likely to encounter uh, on the job. But it was all right there on a computer screen. And uh, <laughs> there were several occasions during that training where I probably just wanted to, to bang my head against the wall. I mean, it was so boring. I mean, if we, if we could die from something being boring, I would probably be to Jesus right now. It was rough. And I think part of what made it just such a, a miserable experience is that I could sense 
as I believe most people can, that that's not really a good way to learn that kind of stuff. I mean, computer training might be okay for you know, company policies and things like that, but it wasn't. A, it was a terrible way for, for, to learn the kinds of things they were trying to teach in that form. Uh, to really learn those things, the best method would be to, just for me to shadow a successful and experienced salesperson and just watch what they do and what they say and maybe have conversations with them about it afterward. So again, observation and conversation. And it works the same way with the Christian life. Again, programs don't disciple people. People disciple people. And they do it by intentionally spending time with those they're seeking to disciple. Now, it may not look exactly the same with us as it did with Jesus and his disciples or with Paul and Timothy. Like, I don't know anyone in this church who's planning to venture out for an extended period of time on some sort of itinerant gospel ministry and who has the opportunity to invite someone else to accompany them and, and, as they travel the country. It's probably not a very common scenario. However, that doesn't mean that we can't still be deliberate about spending time together for the purpose of discipleship. In our context and culture, that would probably look like some sort of regularly scheduled meeting between the person doing the discipling and the person being discipled. It might be once a month, twice a month, or even every week. And let me take a few moments here to just get super practical with you and give you an idea of what a typical meeting might look like. Now, please understand that what I'm about to outline isn't some sort of requirement or mandate. Uh, this is just what I've been personally doing with several guys and, and uh, have found helpful. And just so you know, also, it's very rare that I would have a meeting where we hit all of the items on this list. But these are simply the kinds of questions and discussion topics that regularly come up. Uh, after beginning the meeting with prayer, we often talk about how life has been going lately. Sometimes this leads to a very meaningful discussion about a certain issue that comes up, and sometimes it doesn't. Then the main component of the meeting is discussing what God's been teaching us in our personal devotions during the past week, our personal times of prayer and Bible reading. So first, one of us will take a turn sharing, and then the other will take a turn, since we're usually reading two different things. And the things we share are usually based on journal entries from throughout the week. I found that, that uh, writing a, a short journal entry helps me to get a lot more out of my Bible reading time uh, than I otherwise would, and, and also is a great thing to reference in these discipleship meetings. Then after that, we'll typically recite any scripture that we've been memorizing. So for example, right now, I'm in the process of memorizing the book of 1 Timothy, passage by passage. And so whenever I get together with the, the various guys in these different meetings, I'll recite my passage, and they will recite theirs from whatever book they're memorizing. And uh, having that accountability also spurs us on to uh, memorize, uh, to, to be more faithful in, in memorization than we would otherwise be if we didn't know we were going to have to share our passage with each other. And then after that, we'll ask some agreed-upon accountability questions. 
related to personal struggles in life or simply anything that we want to keep an eye on. So this is the time to discuss things like the health of your marriage if you're married or a struggle with pornography if you have that or uh, whatever topics you would like accountability for. And then one thing I think is especially important uh, at the end of the meeting to discuss is whether you've had any gospel conversations during the past week or, or have even tried to, to just reach out to non-Christians in, in any way. And then you can spend some time praying even for specific individuals you're trying to reach out to as well as for any other needs and issues that may have come up during the meeting. Now again, this whole outline is just a suggestion. You don't have to do this, and you probably won't be able to hit all six of these things in a quality way anyway in a single meeting unless you spend three hours together, which I don't usually recommend. But these are simply the kinds of things that many of your meetings might include. And along those lines, let me emphasize with all of this, that the most important thing isn't so much what exactly you do together, but rather the kind of person that you are. I've heard it said, and heartily agree, that you can teach what you know, but you'll reproduce who you are. You can teach what you know, but you'll reproduce who you are. So don't obsess about designing the perfect discipleship meeting that's perfectly balanced in every way. There's no magical formula for this. The most important element by far isn't the meeting anyway, but rather the kind of person that you are and the degree of godliness that you consistently exhibit. That's what's going to make an impact on people. And uh, by the way, some free parenting advice here. Parenting works the same way as this. In fact, parenting is the ultimate discipling relationship. And it's quite similar to other discipling relationships in that it's not primarily about designing the perfect family devotion times or figuring out the, the perfect regimen for family devotions. Rather, it's about modeling godliness for your kids and letting them see what's really important to you. In fact, let me rephrase that. They will see what's important to you. You can't hide it. So make sure that you're truly pursuing things in life that are worth pursuing and living in such a way that deserves imitation. Because again, you can teach what you know, but more often than not, not all the time, but more often than not, you'll end up reproducing who you are. So the better you become at discipling relationships, I mean, that's like 80 to 90% of parenting right there, right? You've already learned how to become a good parent if you know how to engage in discipling relationships. And returning now to discipling relationships in general, let me encourage you to think about 
opportunities you may have to start investing in other people in this way. Now, hopefully, this is something that every single Christian in this room aspires to do. In fact, I'll even go a step further and say that we're commanded to do this. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, that we quote at the conclusion of every church service, Jesus tells us to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Notice there that Jesus doesn't merely say to make converts of all nations, does he? The command is much more comprehensive than that. He says to make disciples of all nations. And then explains that that involves teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Friends, if that's not a mandate for discipling relationships, I don't know what is. Now, maybe there are some of you who are listening to everything I've been saying and, and who agree that this is all good and biblical but who just don't feel ready to disciple someone yet. If that's you, let me first say that you might actually be more ready than you think you are. You don't have to be a perfect Christian in order to disciple someone. If that were the case, none of us could disciple anybody. So maybe there are some areas in which you're just not very strong. That's okay, because get this, all you have to do to disciple someone is teach them what you do know, not what you don't know. Think about that. that that's both somewhat obvious and yet potentially revolutionary at the same time. All you have to do in order to disciple someone is teach them what you do know, not what you don't know. However, even if after considering that reality, maybe you still don't feel ready to disciple someone. If that's the case, and if you're a Christian, you really need to be seeking out someone to disciple you. Think about it. Jesus has commanded us to make disciples. It's a command. We call it the Great Commission for a reason, not the great suggestion. And so, if you don't yet feel equipped to actively and fully obey the Great Commission, then you need to find someone to disciple you, to help you progress toward that level. So my advice, join a community group, get to know different people in the church, identify someone that you think would be good to disciple you, and then go up to them and ask them if that's something they would be willing to do. And if they say no, bring them to me so I can deal with them. <laughs> I'm just joking. But kind of not. All right. That's my advice. And then hopefully one day, in the not too distant future, you'll be in a position to pass that on to someone else. Because that's the pattern we see in the Bible. Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. We see this pattern especially clearly in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, where Paul tells Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, 
entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So notice how Paul's discipleship model worked, right? Paul discipled Timothy. Timothy was then supposed to disciple faithful men, and those faithful men would then disciple others. So that's four spiritual generations, right? Paul, Timothy, the faithful men, and others. That's how discipleship works. Someone disciples you, and then you, in turn, disciple others, and then train those others to make disciples of their own. It's what we commonly call multiplication. Right? We don't just want to add disciples as a church. We want to multiply disciples. And we do that by making disciple makers. And the difference between adding and multiplying might initially seem relatively small at first, but trust me, it's not. For example, look at this chart. I'm not sure if you can read the, the text on there, but the title is How to Turn a Penny into $5.4 million. You can do it in 30 days simply by doubling that penny every day. So you start out on day one with one penny. Then if you double that on day two, you get two pennies. And then on day three, it's four pennies. And then eight pennies. And then 16, 32, 64. Then you've got over a dollar on day eight. And on day 30, you end up with $5.4 million. That's the power of multiplication. So hopefully... You're starting to see why I titled this message, How to Make the Greatest Possible Impact with Your Life. This is why. This is how you can make the greatest possible impact with your life. And guys, the best thing about this is that you don't have to be some sort of rock star Christian to do this. Right? I'm not sure that we have any rock star Christians in this church. And that's okay, because this is a method that's designed not for exceptionally gifted Christians, but rather for ordinary Christians, like you and me. If we'll simply make disciples, who we then train to make other disciples, and, and who then train those disciples to make more disciples, the impact of that over time, it's staggering. And if you look at your bulletin, you'll notice that we believe in this approach to disciple-making so much that we include it very intentionally and very clearly in our church's mission statement that we put on the front page of the bulletin just about every Sunday. It says that we want to glorify God by helping people know Christ personally, grow to spiritual maturity, and what? Become disciple makers themselves, right? There it is, every Sunday. Hopefully you aspire to that. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if in 10 years, every single Christian in this room was actively engaging in a discipling relationship with someone? I mean, think about how incredible that would be, that the impact that our church would make 
the kingdom of God. And bringing things back to our main passage in Acts 16, I believe all of this was in Paul's mind from day one. From the day he asked Timothy to accompany him, I think it's safe to assume he expected a lot more out of that discipling relationship than just one guy being discipled. He knew that he would train Timothy to disciple others, who would then disciple others, who would then disciple others. And hopefully that can be happening at our church as well. Hopefully you have that kind of ambition for your life, for the glory of God. Let me remind you again that we have only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So think about that as you set your priorities and plan your schedule. However, there is one last thing we have to consider. The very first step to making disciples is to become a disciple yourself. You can't give to others what you yourself haven't received or impart to others something you yourself haven't experienced. So that means that you may have gained a lot of wisdom about a lot of things over the course of your life, and that's great. But if you haven't encountered Jesus in a life-changing way and, and experienced his radical work of transformation in your heart, then you're not ready to make disciples. What you need this morning is to come to the realization, first of all, that each one of us has sinned against God and therefore stands condemned before him because of our sin. We need a savior. And that's exactly what Jesus came to be. Jesus entered this world as a human being, lived a perfectly sinless life, and then died on the cross to pay for our sins. He endured the punishment that we deserved. Not just the physical pain of crucifixion, but the full, undiluted judgment of God against sin. That's what Jesus suffered on that cross. Then three days later, he resurrected from the dead so that we also could have victory over sin and death. And yet the Bible says that in order to experience all of this, We have to do two things. We have to turn away from our sins in repentance. And we have to put our trust in Jesus alone to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to rescue us from our sin. And it's then and only then that we're ready to do what we've been talking about this morning and make disciples who make disciples.